Welcome to Behavioral Health Today, a podcast brought to you by the Triad Network. This podcast is designed to share trending topics occurring within the world and our communities and bring them a behavioral and mental health perspective. Welcome to Behavioral Health Today, a Triad production. I'm your host, Dr. Graham Taylor. My guest today is Sensei Koshin Pali Ellison. Koshin is an author, Zen teacher, Jungian psychotherapist, and an ACPE certified chaplaincy educator. Koshin began his formal Zen training in 1987. He completed six years of training at the Jungian Psychoanalytic Association, as well as clinical contemplative training at both Mount Sinai Beth Israel Medical Center and the New York Presbyterian Medical Center as well. Koshin is a renowned thought leader and author in contemplative care. His work has been featured in the New York Times, PBS, CBS Sunday Morning, and other media outlets. After more than a decade as a chaplain and psychotherapist, Koshin co-founded the New York Zen Center for Contemplative Care. Koshin currently serves on the faculty of multiple fellowships and is a visiting professor at the McGovern Center for Humanities and Ethics at the Houston Medical Center. Koshin, I want to welcome you to our show. I'm so excited to have you here today. Pleasure to be here with you, Graham. Thank you so much. Hey, you know, I would love our listeners as we start out to uh, get a little bit of your inspiration as to what brought you into this work as a sensei and your current work as the president and guiding teacher at the New York Zen Center. Well, to me, what brings me into the work is curiosity and also because I know what it is to suffer and to feel caught, overwhelmed, confused, and hurt, and that there's a way to live beyond that. And the way beyond that is through it. And so as a young child who experienced many different, you know, sexual trauma and physical trauma and many difficulties, I understood that there was a way out and it was through relationship, through healing relationships. And really the first one that I encountered was my karate sensei, sensei white, and who was really the first person I understood to be a real, a true teacher. Mm. And before we would do kind of physical activity, and this is when I was around close to 11 years old, and he would, you know, have us sit in Seiza, which is like our knees underneath ourselves. And, and he would walk very slowly around us in a very intentional way. Just always repeat, you will never be free until you can be still with your pain. So I think in many ways, this felt like learning a superpower that is available to everybody, to all of us. If we can mm -hmm. just learn not to be follow our distractions and not to react and learning how to be still mm -hmm. is very powerful. And it was actually the beginning also for me of what I would call compassion, which was, well, most people that I knew and encountered, even as a young person, I understood that they were like great people and what they were doing was not great. So what they were doing and saying didn't match up. And so I think the beginning of compassion is to realize, oh yeah, we all, get into that habit 
where our actions and our words don't match what we say we deeply value. Mm -hmm. To me, that was the beginning of my Zen path and to, but also as someone who's committed their life and have a life vow to mm -hmm. be of service in the world and to do what I can to bring some healing. Mm. Maybe you hear the ambulance outside, you know, to actually be with the suffering. You know, there's an image in the Zen tradition and Buddhist tradition called Avalokiteshvaras. Their name means the one who hears the cries of the world mm. and doesn't turn away. And so that, that ability to hear the cries of the world and respond with loving attention to me is the whole way. Mm. Yeah. Those are some beautiful words in there. They really are. I know that you help a wide variety of folks, medical professionals, parents, lawyers, artists, bankers, in this compassionate understanding of things where you're saying, I, I, I want to help folks learn to sit with their and others' pain. I'm thinking about mm -hmm. caregivers and what they so courageously and bravely sit with and hold and not turn away from the pain that they oftentimes have to hold when others can't hold their own. Mm -hmm. But that really requires one to learn how to tolerate sit with, experience without having to do anything about it and trust that process of being with it is going to lead us through something. It's not an easy process. No. And I think that if we really reflect on all the great stories in our lives, you know, thinking about the Iliad and the Odyssey and even the Hobbit and all of these wonderful you know, wonderful stories are, you know, contemporary stories of Black Panther, different fun stories that it's never easy for any of them. And I think if we really remember from fairy tales and mythology and our Iron Man and Wonder Woman stories is that they, no one would read those stories if they said, oh, you know, Something's happening, but it's too hard. And they just like went back to bed. You know, right. we wouldn't go to the movies. Right. <laughs> we <has> wouldn't. <laughs> and so I think we often, it's so interesting. We watch people doing hard things. We're inspired by people who do hard things. And I think it's really important. It has been in my own life is to remember is that we can do hard things. Mm -hmm. And when we do hard things, we learn something mm -hmm. that is invaluable, which is that we can do hard things mm -hmm. and that we can actually see things through. Mm -hmm. And to me, it's also how we develop confidence and trust. Mm -hmm. I like that idea. We have to earn confidence. We just can't be told that, okay, you're going to be okay. We have to earn it. And if we reverse engineer that, well, to be confident, we have to have a sense of competency or mastery. And if we reverse engineer that, we have to determine, well, I've got to do right things repeatedly so I can develop over time 
a mastery, a competence, then I can walk into situations competently. I mean, who, who would not want to turn away from pain? Who would not want to turn away from fear? That, 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 that's the pleasure principle. You know, avoid pain, seek pleasure, you know, because the pain probably has a reason, probably has some memories around it. And we want to avoid those things that are sometimes particularly traumatic and, and hard for us to re-experience. But you're saying, then we stay small. Then we stay at the mercy of whatever the cries internally are. And we never rise above those. We're only as good as those memories don't get triggered. And what you're raising here is this idea of how can we subjugate ourselves to these fears, these pains, these cries of the world, and learn both to sit with ourselves and with others when these things surface. I can't think of anything that's more important in our lives than to develop that ability to overcome those fears. Yeah. It's the most important thing, you know, and I think things that are hard won are, are so valuable, mm -hmm. right? And they have this, like, we imbue them, you know, Carl Jung would call it, you know, painting a soulful attitude is like assigning meaning to what is valuable. And I think in many ways that our society, we isolate ourselves because as you were saying, we just like, we avoid displeasure and just like our little like three-celled hydra friends you know little tiny microscopic things they also move away from things mm -hmm. and and so do our cats and so does everything yeah. you know they don't they don't like loud noises they don't like yeah. to be disturbed and yet what's amazing is that we as human beings have the capacity to change and we have the capacity to say like, wow, I feel afraid mm -hmm. or this feels really hard. And what else is true? My yes. goodness, I can actually do this. I, yes. I'm doing this thing that felt so uncomfortable yeah. and I can learn how to be comfortable in the midst of discomfort. I can mm -hmm. experience fearlessness by moving with my fear mm -hmm. and so i think that you know and i really both explore this in entangled about learning how to feel your feelings without becoming your feelings and i think in many ways this is like the true medicine and how we can actually we have this contemplative medicine fellowship for physicians and nurse practitioners and physician assistants. And it's really incredible because it's actually learn teaching these beautiful practitioners yeah. how to actually realize that, wow, most of the burnout and most of the struggle comes both from our isolation and, you know, not knowing how to move with what we feel and learning how to do something fresh yeah. and how to actually connect and to realize, oh my goodness, you struggled too? Yeah. Me too. But we kind of universal. To be a, yes. Yeah. Yes. Mm -hmm. yes. You know, as you raise this, we can feel our feelings without becoming our feelings or our experience. One of the challenges yeah. around that is most traumas, most difficult experiences unknowingly, more times than not, they 
happened in our youth. We haven't got a frontal lobe at that time to plan and reason and judgment and, and logic through those things. So all of it is emotion. And there are pathways neurologically that get laid down. Mm. And when I experience something at eight years old and it's traumatic, little do I know that there's pathways laid down around that, literally. Then so when I'm 48 and I experience a similar fear, it feels mm. like I'm eight, just as real, just as alive just as technicolored and Dolby sounded as it was then, I experience it now, but we forget that we're not eight years old anymore. And what you're talking about is we can say, hey, you're, but you're not eight. Oh yeah, I know that. But I react and that neural pathway literally gets lit up. Even if it's a false alarm, it's still, it's experienced as real. And the only way through that is what you're suggesting is that we have to sit with and see if what happened at eight years old is, is really real right now at 48 as it was then the answer is no and we can get it intellectually but we have to experience it experientially to get on the other side of it and say you know i just sat with the scariest thing i've lived with for the last four decades and i've just learned and my paradigm has to change that i'm not eight anymore and that i can tolerate what was so painful all the things i've done to avoid it all the things i've done at my very best to take care of myself but maybe I don't have to do anymore. I can hold now what I couldn't hold four decades ago. And that's a practice you're talking about here of working through and overcoming hard things. Goodness. You know, Grandma, I'm feeling very tender towards you right now. Feel close to you. you know? Well, I, th I, think, I think we're on a, on a similar vibration here around this whole thing. And, and this, is, this is what you're saying in, in, in your book, Untangled. I'd love to get into that just a wee bit here. Then it's we get tangled by things. What, what do we get tangled up in? The main things that we get entangled by are our thoughts and feelings and opinions. And, you know, they are so ingrained. You know, the historical Buddha, who is just like some guy who lived about 2,600 years ago, he described it as like this road with ruts in it, you know, where these carts would go down the road it was a dirt road remember oh, there, there used to be dirt roads and and they would you know develop these ruts where the wheels could get stuck actually and and he described when that happens when you're get stuck in a rut everybody has to get out of the cart and lift the cart so there's that effort right mm. so like learning how to and you have to lift the cart up Oh, and it was like, wow, that's like lots of effort, you know, and mm -hmm. that's, you know, one of the ways that he described how to work with our mind. Right. And so like what you're describing is so real, you know, that we often are not in the time of our life. You know, Carl Jung would talk about that, you know, that in some ways the work, our work as human beings is to be in the time of our life because we're rarely here yes. we're some somewhere else and so the entanglement is coming back into the time that we're in it's like oh my goodness like look at you graham like we're right here yeah and it's also interesting because then you know as a zen person and zen student and teacher like i really appreciate that there's an emphasis that we are in time and the work also as like an echo of what Jung was saying is that we are time 
like there is no other time and except we jump out mm -hmm. this so lifting heart heartbreaking isn't it heartbreaking it's sad isn't it and important to feel the sadness of it because if we don't suffer what we're entangled with we never change really we'll be right back after word from our sponsor whether you're a longtime or first-time listener to behavioral health today you're probably familiar with triad the company that brings you this podcast but you may not know that Triad also hosts a community for current and aspiring behavioral and mental health professionals, featuring trending content and education and career resources, all for free. If you are a behavioral or mental health professional, or you're studying to become one, join more than 80,000 people on Triad by claiming your free professional account today. Visit us at hellotriad.com bht. That's hellotriad.com bht, and join the Triad community today. We're only as good as we can protect ourselves and life is spent trying to be safe. And little do we know that those false alarms that go off to have to be safe aren't as real right now as they once were, or, or if they are real, we're not eight years old anymore. And maybe we have cognition, maybe we have healthy people in our lives now, maybe we have coping strategies and some other ways to get through the difficult things that once upon a time at eight years old, we were just subject to and at the mercy of. But we have so many other ways that we can work through and get out of these things. And maybe we can even shred, you know, some of those things. You talk about shedding the threads. Talk a little bit about that. That's a tongue twister. Talk a little bit about this shedding the threads, would you? Yeah. Many of us know our stories. You know, I know that so many people, including myself, have looked at myself in the mirror and said like, oh yeah, I know my stuff. Like that's my bullshit or that's my stuff. And you know, we kind of get complacent and say like, that's our thread. That's our, you know, and to me, that's not good enough because I'm particularly interested in freedom and clarity. And so it's, to me, it's like these three words that are have become super important to me as kind of a little map. And one of them is clarity. And, you know, so I'm yes. thinking about one of the doctors that I had the pleasure to work with, and she was talking about just like kind of crawling into our fellowship because her life felt really like a mess. And she was just so caught in she, her stuff and that, you know, work was basically fine and she loved her kids and her partner, but just it all felt crappy. And many of us hang out in that. It's almost like that we think it's our fate. We're clear, but not really. The critical moment for me is having the courage to say, mm. yes, that's true. And how do I, you know, slowly pad my way out of this swamp of this way of behaving in the world that increases my entanglement? So that to me is like the shredding of the thread happens when we say, I need to do something different and it's going to require courage, which is, which means hardness. And how do I really like, mm, mm, like climb out of the swamp of our patterns of our, or even our clarity, 
And, and learning how to do that. And then we kind of lift ourselves up. And what she described, you know, she discovered at one moment after working together for quite, I don't know, a couple months, like looking up and seeing her kids, huh. but actually seeing them, not the idea of seeing her kids. She just saw them playing and brushing each other's hair hmm. and the miracle of that. And then she saw her husband and she's like, He's so beautiful. Mm. And she hadn't really seen him in such a long time. And so I think in many ways, like that's suddenly where we move from clarity of like, oh yeah, my stuff to that courage and then into compassion. Like, oh my goodness, I struggle, you struggle and we're here together. What a miracle. Yeah, it's a beautiful process you described. This idea of clarity—it's—it's it's actually what's real, what, what what is really going on. That without our filters or our pain or our, our distractions, whatever they may be, without with those all lifted, mm. we get to see what's really, really in front of us. But that takes some courage. That takes some—I like that word—hardness. I hardy or kind of emotional muscle effective tolerance, whatever we want to put to it, but this sense of kind of a grit that allows us to lean into these things and really be honest. And with that practice comes this almost, it sounds like this, un, this openness that they hadn't seen before that I'm really seeing things the way that they truly are. And there's compassion and got to be joy and just kind of ecstasy in those moments when you're seeing some things in their true clarity. Mm. It's delicious. Yeah, that's a good word. I want to take that in. That's some good stuff. That's well, you said earlier. Yeah. But in, in kind of shredding the the, the thread, you, you you talked in your book. I know, kind of Peter outlined this for us. Our executive producer, you're kind of finding the true pleasure in things and mm -hmm. and not holding back. And this connection, this universality of this shared struggle, mm -hmm. and it's true. We're not in this world alone, though we we feel very isolated at times. And there's been some things in our nation that causes more isolation and there's a lot of division right now sadly that's creating more and more division and we need to stay away from those divisive things because we're really not that alone that's what that's part of what you're saying too we're actually kind of in this together and there are some good things that can come from that realization totally yeah yes. you talk about kind of you guide people through this process of untangling and trying to go beyond what are some of the initial parts of that some of the initial steps and how you walk folks through that that path traditionally it's called the four noble truths what i've always loved about them is it is this kind of very step-by-step -step process that the historical buddha laid out but i think what's really important is that he laid it out after he tried a lot of different things and tried a little yoga, tried a couple meditation apps, tried, you know, like I always imagined that that's what he was doing, you know. He was doing things like that, listening to some podcasts. That's right. Um, and then he realized at a certain point, he has to just stop. So kind of like my teacher, Sensei White, you know, at a certain point, you just have to learn how to be still. 
And so once he was still and realized that he was running around from all the things he feared, what he really woke up to was that, you know, there's a nobility of suffering. There's a nobility in like our entanglement. And what I think is really important is that to understand that, mm. that, wow, to understand that I get tangled up inside of myself is a nobility such a like appreciate that. Mm. Yeah, I get screwed up. I get where my values and my actions don't meet. That happens to me. And that is noble because we have to be able to see it mm -hmm. clearly mm -hmm. in order to go into some action like what we we're just talking about, the courage to just like, mm -hmm. okay, I'm going to meet it. And the second nobility that the Buddha talked about was that these, I call them the giants. They're like the giants of resentment, the giants of delusion which basically the main delusion is like i think i'm not you or i don't depend on like a million people to bring me my food you know like all of these crazy delusions that we think we're alone yeah. and resentment and also just greed just like i want more more like never enough and mm. and just to realize oh there's a nobility in recognizing that because I experience it, you experience it, we all do. And these things are easy to say, but to actually experience them. And then to realize like, wow, the third nobility is that we can change, we can pivot. You know, we're not fated no. to stay in our entanglement. I remember one of my students, you know, she's amazing. She got really interested in this work, you know, and the untangling. And she had this huge ball of yarn that had been, I think, entangled by her mother, actually, which is interesting. <laughs> and she decided to take it as a practice, this huge knotted entangled yarn thing of many colors. And it took her a very long time to untangle it. And so I think it's like that kind of work yeah. that literally you have to like, where does this piece go? <laughs> yes. You know, so I think we have to really pay attention very carefully to these giants that create our suffering and realize that we can change. And that what she found over time literally untangling this yarn is like, wow, I can do that. <laughs> I like this and, idea of, around the nobility, yeah, that we can do it. And there's, there's, there's nobility in, in, in acknowledging our entanglements. Of course we're entangled. Come on. How could we not be in our complex world? How can we not be? Our parents do the best job they can with what they've gotten and they had their upbringings, but you know, we're all imperfect. How can we not have entanglements? How can we go through the world unscathed? I've said it before on our show, Scott Peck's first sentence, three words in his book, The Road Less Traveled, life is difficult. You know, how, how, how it, there's an acceptance of that and there's a freedom in it though. And what you're talking about in that acceptance, it's almost as though we're giving ourselves some grace 
and we're giving grace to others, of course we're entangled. I have a funny quick story around the ball of yarn. I used to run a, a group for diabetics at a hospital where I uh, used to work. And we might have maybe 20 people in the group. And I had this big ball of colored yarn, much like what you're describing. We'd be sitting in a circle and I would start and I would you know, tell them who I am and, and give my just a short story. And then I'd throw the ball across the room to the next person and they would tell their story and they would take that ball and they would throw it to somebody else and then to somebody else. And after 20 people, you can imagine that there's these threads that are so intermingled and crossing everything else. But the thing was, we were all tied together, sharing something similar, our entanglements that happened to be around diabetes and all the things that go with it. Nonetheless, the analogy here is that we are all in this together and we're not alone. And we're all holding this up and we kind of move it and kind of flow and it was a very real visual that we aren't alone in this. It feels like it, but there has to be an acceptance of it in order to see that one, we're not in it alone, that there are others along with us. And that's what you're trying to kind of really emphasize here that I love. Absolutely. You know, and, and people want to often jump to the last nobility, which is the path, the kind of like the way out. And, you know, but I think it's so important as you're saying, to really honor like that, oh boy, there's entanglements and oh goodness, there are also reasons, these giant things that we all have to deal with that cause the entanglement Yeah, and we can change. And so to appreciate that, I think that we all have a tendency to kind of want to bypass what's hard yeah. and just jump to this path. Yeah, like, oh yeah, I want the path. <laughs> Give me, give me some yeah. bath in there. <laughs> quickly. Yeah. You know, I want to be out of this. I want to be out of this rut, but there's a process to get out of a rut. And that's what you're very clearly sharing that we, we kind of have to lift ourselves out of this. There are a number of, number of things you talk about of how to get oneself out of that path and into a new one where there can be a new experience, a new corrective emotional experience that maybe folks didn't know that they had an opportunity to have. And it gets to be a new rut or a new neural pathway, we would say. We can even measure these, that we actually get to create new ones. And I know we're kind of coming to the end of our show, but I would love maybe for you to leave our listeners with one thing they could do, even maybe even this moment as they're listening, to encourage more awareness just in the moment. How might one do one simple thing to do that? Well, one thing that comes to mind that was actually a discovery for me while I was writing this book, which was this contemplation of how armored up I was and how in my life for very good reasons. And I was so armored up that when I was in my early 20s, I started to realize it was like a prison. Mm -hmm. It really felt like that kind of medieval armor. And it became like a cage. Mm. And I realized like the front of the cage, and it was like literally like the size of my body, like armor is. And to me, it was actually beginning to reflect on. And what I would encourage all of us to reflect on is, wow, the front of the cage is sort of what I'm aware of, like the most of the things that I'm aware of. And what are those things? What are the things that are kind of caging me in, pressing in from the front that I can see? And also what are on the sides? Like what are the things you can kind of see? 
and what's behind you? Like, what are, what's the back of the cage made out of? And then we don't really know, but can we feel into it? And, you know, Jung would talk about that the shadow is easier to work with when it's in front of us. So like to actually see what's in front of us first, so that at least we can get out and then take a look at the rest. And so what is the one thing that actually feels workable that used to serve you maybe a long time ago? Like for me, it was actually, I often tell this story about when I was 18, I was on a Greyhound bus. I don't know if those still exist, but like I was on a bus and, and I remember this woman sitting next to me, she had our little plastic smiling face plastic bag and she was looked at me and she saw my beads or something and she said oh you're a buddhist and i said oh yeah like i'm a buddhist and she said oh really who's your teacher and i said oh this person that person this person that person she said oh you're a lone wolf and i said oh yeah yeah that's me like i felt great about that And she said, the interesting thing about lone wolves is that they are often sick. Unless they're scouting for the pack, they're sick and need help or they won't survive. Mm -hmm. And I just remember thinking, oh, shit. And so for me, that was sort of the front of my cage. That was a divine moment right there. Mm, it was so powerful. And I realized like my fear of belonging, my fear of like, just like going it alone was really the first thing. It was like the entry point to a new life. Mm. It was like the shape of my new life was that humility of seeing, wow, I am, I'm sick. I have a sickness here. And the sickness is my aloneness. Mm. And it was very humbling and super helpful. That was a really profound moment that who'd have thunk it, that you're jumping on a Greyhound bus at that age (laughs) to be sitting next to somebody with a smiley bag with such a profound message. Holy cow. But incredible. Yeah, but I, I love what you're saying. And again, I know we're winding down, but this idea that that which protects us at some point imprisons us. And, mm-hmm. and, and, and there's no judgment around that. I'm so glad that we have had those things that have protected us. I'm glad we did whatever we needed to do to survive. But the hardest part totally. and the saddest part and kind of the, uh, I'm not quite sure the word, just the, I, I guess, the, I think the sad part and kind of maybe the ironic paradoxical piece is we only grow to the size of the walls around us. And unless we open the door you're talking about and see the shadow in front of us to walk through it mm. and, and mm. put a different ending on it, ideally corrective, then we only grow to the point where our our pains and our ways to protect ourselves allow us to grow. So I, I, I just love this message. Koshin, as we're winding down, I would love our listeners to be able to follow up with you and your center and learn more about your book. Give us some ways to follow up with you after the show today, would you? Sure. So our center... It's called New York Zen Center and at, at New York Zen Center on Instagram, as well as the website is zencare.org. And we do have some wonderful 
ways to engage, including daily yes. Zen practice and online and in person, as well as we have these larger programs called, one is called Commit to Sit. So if you're interested in actually deepening your practice or exploring a practice, we have these 90-day periods of time twice a year, and then the next one begins in January. And we also have a contemplative medicine fellowship for physicians, as I was sharing, and yeah. there's practitioners and physician assistants. And for folks, like you were talking about lawyers and acrobats, yeah. and <laughs> right. we have a beautiful offering called the Foundations in Contemplative Care, which is also a nine-month training for anyone who's interested in bringing their values and what they do and how they're of service in the world together. And three books. My latest book is called Untangled, Walking the Eightfold Path to Clarity, Courage, and Compassion. It's available in audio and, and in hardback. And of course, on Kindle and iBooks. And as well as my first book that I wrote, which is called Wholehearted, Slow Down, Help Out, Wake Up, which is also audio and physical and ebook. And then the first book that I put together, which is so beautiful, it's called Awake at the Bedside, Contemplative Teachings and Paled of an mm-hmm. End of Life Care, which is a book that I edited and I'm just very delighted with. And it's really for a good companion of many voices of doctors and Buddhist practitioners about how they work with pain and suffering. At really good. Life. Really good. I saw those on your website and just read a little bit of the excerpts and this sounds like really significant works and helping someone come alongside somebody at that time in life too. You know, I, I know that there's no greater gift to give or to receive than to be known, to know oneself, to know somebody else and and in the process of being able to slow down in order to develop that knownness. And I appreciate you sharing, you know, your gift and this path that mm. you've used to create this experience in oneself and also mm. for us in relationship with one another. And I've really enjoyed mm. having you on this show today. Thank you so much for being with us, Koshin. It's a pleasure to meet you, Grant. That's my pleasure as well. I also want to thank you, our listeners, for dropping by and joining Koshin and me today. It's always great to have you with us. Regarding our episode today, I want to remind you that it and its resources and all of our other episodes can be found on our webpage at triadhq.com slash BHT. So check out our webpage, triadhq.com slash BHT, and explore our archive of podcasts and other resource materials. Thanks again for being with us on this show, and we look forward to having you back with us next time on Behavior Health Today. We appreciate all the support from our community, and if you like our show, one of the best ways you can support it is by giving us a five-star rating and leaving a review. Behavioral Health Today is a podcast part of the Tribe Network, all rights reserved.